Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Plentiful, an Abound Food Care podcast where we take a deeper dive into food care and how we can create a world in which hunger and food waste are eliminated. With your host, Mike Learakis. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our latest edition of Plentiful, the Abound Food Care podcast. I am absolutely thrilled today to have as our guest, Mr. Robert Ager. Uh, I have been wanting to have uh, Robert on since we decided to do this podcast series. So Robert is a former food service operator, uh, entrepreneur, uh, nonprofit leader, author, uh, and for me, an absolute inspiration and a guiding light. Uh, He is the founder of the DC Central Kitchen, also the LA Central Kitchen, and uh, Robert can correct me, but I think he is still an advisor for the uh, mayor of uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Is that correct, Robert? Santa Fe. Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm sorry about that. Yep. So, uh, but most importantly, what I've always valued about Robert is he is exceedingly honest. <clears throat> it's a it's a trait we value, and uh, and one of the things we're going to talk about today are his experiences in this realm of charitable feeding, food insecurity, how the nonprofit sector works, both pros and cons. So, without any further ado, Robert, welcome. Right on, dude. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Okay, I've got to tell you, uh, when we started doing this 10 years ago, we thought we were blazing a trail. And then we found you, and we realized that you've been doing this for 30 years, and you had much of the same characteristics that we valued and employed, which was that honesty, uh, the way that you conduct yourself, the ability to see things for what they are, identify strengths and weaknesses, even our own, just an eye on the bigger picture, uh, the grander vision. And uh, it was so comforting to us to know that you had already gone that route. And I, and I always go back to the first time I met you, we were on a panel uh, in Anaheim and I can't remember what it was for, but I remember going, God, I didn't know this guy existed. He's phenomenal. So in those years since then, you have really helped us out in more ways than you will ever know. So I want to thank you and start with that. Well, right on, dude. I mean, you know, again, it's, um, I feel it's, it's a joyful obligation, you know, to be open source and available to any and all who come, you know, seeking knowledge. Um, and, you know, dude, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, I arrived in LA after 25 years leading the DC kitchen with a grand vision. But, um, you know, again, I'm always very, very kind of almost purposely very aware of what's going on in the larger movement when right next door, you know, Dr. Eric Handler, um, who was, um, as I recall, the, the head of the Department of, of Health in Orange County, convened a gathering of people to talk about food waste. And I was like, wow, you know, I got to be part of this. And I remember driving down and getting kind of lost in the labyrinth of, of government buildings down there, but ultimately finding, you know, him and then you and then a whole bunch of people down in OC, you know, really, you um, you know, again, both excited about what you were going to create, but also open enough to invite a guy like me in to offer you my thoughts. So again, right off the bat, I felt here are people who want to pioneer, but are also really open enough um, and willing to hear, you know, other ideas and, and incorporate it and make them their own. So again, you know, I think we have a mutual admiration society going. <laughs> 
I appreciate it. Hey, can you do us a favor? Can you share with everybody how you got started with the L or the DC Central Kitchen? What you were doing as an operator and what got you into that space? Well, you know what? It's so interesting because um, the original kind of impetus was in a volunteer experience on a rainy night in Washington, D.C., in which I, a reluctant volunteer, and frankly, a little bit of a nervous volunteer, the first time I had gone out to, like, you know, feed the homeless, and like many people, you know, I was understandably, but, but you know, sadly burdened by prejudices and bigotries about stereotypes, you know, who, who's out there, they're crazy people. And, you know, obviously, like 99.9% like .9 of the people who go out and serve, you find yourself confronted by your own, you know, limited thinking and excited by the friendships and the conversations you have uh, with people who just happen to be out on the street. Now, um, on this particular night, again, it was raining and I was up in a warm truck serving food that had been purchased from a very expensive grocery store in Washington, D.C., and I was aware, you know, just because I was a nightclub manager, and I knew because of inventory controls, how much food we threw away. And, you know, as you probably know, it's, it's kind of baked into food service. I mean, even to this day, when anytime you buy a burger, you're paying for the cost of the burger that didn't get sold in the back. Anyway, I just thought, wow, I work in an industry and I know thousands of friends who throw away food every night all over this city for lack of a health approved alternative. But the more important aspect was when I actually started having these conversations I alluded to, how many people look like they needed, you know, that metaphorical hand up, not the hand out. And more importantly, I was up in the warm truck and they were out in the rain. And I thought that was a very, uh, you know, ill, uh, uh, I just was, was really turned off by that, that dichotomy of experience. I'm warm and dry, they're wet and cold. And I've, I've said this many times, but it was that experience that kind of, gel this idea that charity is too often about the redemption of the giver when it really should be focused on the liberation of the receiver. So I proposed and I went around to every charity in Washington, D.C. that did food, just a young volunteer trying to help. And I was rebuffed every single time by charities that didn't want to change their way of doing business for something that, at least in my mind's eye, would allow them to feed more people better food for less money and this idea of, you know, what would it be like if we could not only collect all that food, but bring it back to a central kitchen where we could shorten the line by the way we served it by offering men and women a chance to come in out of the rain and be part of the solution and open a cooking school for the homeless. You know, no one had done it, but I knew restaurants needed workers and were very notoriously open and, and forgiving of past sins as long as you showed up on time. But again, man, you know, I'm sorry if this is long-winded, but it was it was the it was the rejection of every group I went to from, by a volunteer just trying to help that led me to form the DC Kitchen because no one else would, and that was interesting enough, my handsome brother. We're recording this uh, on the 18th of January, and on the 20th of January, 1989, with food donated from George Bush Sr.'s inauguration, we officially launched the DC Kitchen. Really. So we're yeah. that close to the anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah, kind of wild, isn't it? So I you had joy in the fact that it's still going. I mean, you know, celebrating 30, 35 years of taking leftover food from restaurants and albeit training people and providing, I think at this point, probably 60 million meals. It's still, you know, I part of the gig. And let's go into that honesty you talked about. You know, 
it's easy to get lost in that idea of I had created an incredibly efficient, wildly successful, emulated, honored organization. Yet in the back of my head, I had to look in the mirror every day and say, look, no matter how cool I make this, I'm still feeding Americans leftover food from restaurants. That's never, I can make it cool, but I can't make it right. You know, there has to be a bigger prize that we're pursuing, not just the efficiency of scale. Yep. Yeah. So I want to touch on that a little bit because there's a, you know, there's how we define success in what we do. And your book is a great example of one that sees that we kept the bar pretty low in terms of, of how we define success. Um, So I'm going to come back to that, but with that success you had in DC and you operated it for how many years, Robert? Well, I was there about 25 before I think as a leader, it was my time to split and do something new. And I really, I was called to continue exploring. Let's put it that way. What comes okay. next? And you ended up in Los Angeles. So can you share with us what brought you out West? Interesting enough, you know, um, I, my eyes are always open um, and I'm always intensely curious and, and kind of intellectually exploring kind of what's around the curve. And there's a little bit of what I learned later was the term, it was called probability. You know, uh, for example, women outlive men, women outnumber men probability says there will be more older women than older men down the road. Now, similarly, I did a speech in the very early 2000s for Meals on Wheels, their national gathering. And it was frankly another gig. I was excited about it and I love speaking gigs, but it was another gig. Yet uh, in a conversation with the CEO, Enid Borden uh, at the time, um, she said that there was a waiting list in half of American cities for Meals on Wheels. And that, that that's, you know, that we can kind of roll that off the tongue, but that means literally an older person has to die for another older person to move up in that line. And, you know, that's pretty hardcore. Um, but, you know, I had been for a while kind of um, trying to draw attention uh, in the broader food world, but particularly with the food bank friends that supply donated free food, which represents lost profit. Every morsel of food that comes into a food bank represents something that was purchased, cooked, uh, processed, and couldn't be sold. Um, And so it's donated. Now that's lost profit. And there's an inevitability to a decreasing supply, even though we throw away an inordinate amount of food, nonetheless. Um, So supply. And then when Enid mentioned this, I thought, well, this is like 2002, the first baby boomer doesn't turn 60 until 2006. So there's 80 million people coming down the road who, unlike that earlier elder generation who were very debt adverse, hated debt, um, worked hard to pay off their mortgages, didn't like credit cards. This new generation, our generation, were burdened and plagued by debt. So I'm thinking, wow, supply, demand, where, what can we do to, to, to march out to meet that future rather than wait for it to happen? So A, um, it was time for me as a leader to show the kind of leadership that means you split and leave the the very strong management board legacy behind and go do something new. I went to Los Angeles because A, you have year round growing and and an almost endless supply of amazing fruits and vegetables that you can get for free and uh, either free, which you can use to fuel a DC central kitchen, social enterprise kind of charitable model that um, trains people for jobs and provides meals, but you could also potentially buy at a reduced price 
some of that fruits and vegetables and then resell it via a social enterprise contract food company. But we had already pioneered in Washington with a, a school food contract. Uh, to this day, DC Kitchen does about 7,000 meals a day for DC public schools, locally sourced food, buying from farmers in uh, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. Again, oftentimes the cosmetically imperfect foods. So I thought, wow, what a great place to go. Also, I knew that LA and, and Southern California at large is, is home to one of the largest concentration of elders in America. But, and this is where it gets a little bit more intellectually interesting, to feed this many elders, because every single morning, 10,000 people turn 72. This morning, tomorrow morning, the next morning. And to feed that many elders, we're gonna have to race towards kind of a plant forward menu. In other words, not vegetarian or vegan, but just smaller portions of meat. And this is just economics 101. I'm not trying to be a nutritional imperialist. I'm not trying to get into anybody's healthcare business. I'm just saying money 101, you can't afford it. So let's race. But what's fun about Southern California, man, if you have you know, the largest concentration of Armenians, South Koreans, Iranians, you have so many flavors to play with that you could actually have a really fun menu that is plant forward. So there was no better place in my opinion to launch kind of a global movement on how do we both feed, nourish, and empower a generation of elders, but also through volunteerism or even jobs, include them, not just kind of push them out to pasture, as has been, you know, kind of our society's, you know, uh, sad tragedy. So anyway, you know, that was the idea. But, and I'm sorry, I know it's a little long-winded, but just to make sure your listeners understand the model, Half of it was a nonprofit that, again, would take donated food, train older men and women home from prison or younger men and women out of foster care for jobs, engage volunteers, and produce really healthy plant-forward meals for free to nonprofit partners with an emphasis on elders or intergenerational. The other side of the model, which was, uh, again, was supposed to account for half our income, I wanted to get contracts with the city's Department of Aging to provide meals that would allow me to employ graduates, buy food, and then reinvest profit over into the nonprofit side. So it'd be a beautiful machine, you know, that, that again, was half earned, in her, earned income, half uh, donated. Right. Tragically, what I ran into, and we can get into it, is the obstinance, and quite frankly, in my opinion, the corruption of these the Department of Aging uh, in Los Angeles, in, in which they were so in bed with a big multinational caterer that they were actually running interference and really, frankly, trying hard to make it difficult for a social enterprise like LA Kitchen to get a fair hearing and a piece of that pie uh, to build a program, no matter how innovative it was. Yeah, you know, it's funny, we always use the analogy that many times working with the public sector is like hand feeding a lion at the zoo. It, it's great until the lion becomes a lion and then it has a terrible end. <laughs> I think it's more the kind of that old thing about, you know, carrying the snake across the river. You know, it's like, why'd you bite me? I'm a snake. Um, but dude, that being said, when you look at the evolution of social enterprise, and I'm a huge believer in mm -hmm. social enterprise, city, county, state contracts are really good business for us. School food, senior meals, prison meals, summer food. These are things that we do. And more importantly, if I'm the mayor, and let's go up, let's go up to five in California. If I'm the mayor of Fresno, Stockton, Bakersfield, broke, broker, brokest, you know, and somebody says, hey, 
there's this new business model in which nonprofits that are going to hire people out of prison or off the street so they won't be out there costing us money. They're going to pay a good wage. They're going to support local farmers. They're going to produce healthy meals. And profit never leaves town. It only gets reinvested back. If I'm a mayor, I'm like, dude, sign me up. I mean, who did? why didn't anybody tell me about social enterprise before? Yeah, so exactly. That right. was a, a big part of the LA Kitchen experiment was trying to show that a contract for a for senior meals, which interesting enough, dude, most people don't even know cities do it. You know, if you ask the average person, hey, did you know the city pays for senior meals? Most people don't know there's a senior meal contract. I was trying to say, look, here's a contract you all don't even know about. Look at all the things we can do with that little piece of money. Now, imagine if the broader city embraced social enterprise and how many nonprofits, instead of just feeding the poor, might become dynamic partners to become employers of people. And we could actually, again, really significantly reduce the people who need charity and increase the number of people who are paying taxes and controlling their own future. Yeah. I remember uh, one item you had that was brilliant was you would take those vegetables that were end of life, the, the residuals many times from food banks, it couldn't be used for anything. And you were reducing it down to a super hyped up shot of, of uh, pro or excuse me, vegetables that would sustain people on skid row uh, another day. I mean, those were people that were close to perishing on the street. Yeah, man. We used to call those Jägermeisters of love. <laughs> you know, it, it was it was a silly little phrase, but dude, it was this idea of whether it's stuff that we had, uh, you know, chopped, diced, puree, juice, zested. I mean, we'd taken everything we could get out of it before we were going to um, compost it. That idea of like, you know, yeah, we could make veggie stock, uh, as any chef in your audience knows, but at the scale we were working, you know, we didn't have freezer space enough for that much stock. And then it's like, well, let's reduce it down to a broth, a super fortified broth. And that way, along with the meal we're providing, which might fill somebody's belly for a couple of hours, but the idea of that super extra shot, you know, and then, you know, dude, we actually were working with USC's medical school. And again, dig this. Those students down there came to us, knocked on our door and said, can we do a culinary medicine partnership? So A, we were teaching them about nutrition and medicine, but at the same time, we were working them to say, sure, we can reduce all kinds of veggies and make a broth, but if we're working with an 80-year-old diabetic, what could that broth look like? If we're working with a 30-year-old addict, what would that broth? Then the idea of actually taking ingredients that we had a wealth of, instead of randomly putting them together, applying science. So that idea of the charitable world in which we both inhabit, taking these, um, frankly, um, modest steps. These aren't, you know, this isn't like rocket science. This is just enlisting strong allies in medical schools and getting their advice. And then again, racing towards new opportunities to feed people better. Yeah. And, and thanks to you, we're piloting in some of our repurposing kitchens. Uh, taking that excess vegetable from, ironically, from food banks and, and creating that base out of it, but it now it can be entered into the jail bid program. So again, it's a social enterprise for these right. either community colleges, for-profit, non-profit, but providing that culinary training and that we all got from you. So, Well, dude, you know what I just did here in New Mexico? You'll appreciate this because while I'm, I'm kind of a semi-retired elder ally. I mean, at a certain point, I, at, you know, when I closed LA Kitchen, because at the end of the day, try as I might, uh, 
six years of relentless, dogged work, hardest I've ever worked in my life. And that's saying something because I'm a hard worker. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had to throw in the towel. I mean, I had, I, had, I had worked so long and hard to try and demonstrate to the larger LA city my purity, you know, my intent, my, my integrity, not realizing they were almost laughing and bleeding me dry, knowing that they, they were never going to give me this contract, no matter how hard I tried. Anyway, um, I decided that at this stage, after you know, running kitchens for almost 40 years, it's like, you know, I, I don't need to run another kitchen. I, I, my, my legacy's cool. I'm good. I'm bona fide. Mm-hmm. I just want to be an, uh, an ally to others. But I came out here to Santa Fe, and right when the virus hit, the mayor asked if I would offer counsel on, you know, ideas. And it turned out that, interesting enough, the culinary program at the local um, uh, community college had closed. The whole school was closed. And I went out to look at their kitchen because they had a beautiful kitchen. And originally the thought was if we could get a bunch of chefs to come in and use this kitchen. But interesting enough, the, uh, the dean and I started talking, and it became one of those, what would it be like if we could get the students back in here safely? But if they could get credit hours and finish their, their, their culinary degree by serving the community during the virus. And it was like, yeah, let's do that. And it's like, well, then let's get the nursing students in here and they can get credit hours for de- developing the protocols and keeping the kind of perimeter safe. And then it's like, well, we got a greenhouse over there. It's like, well, great, let's get the greenhouse students back in. So this idea of, and this was the first time anybody had done this, connecting culinary curriculum at a community college to serving the community. Now, because of that, um, A, we were able to serve, you know, the the broader New Mexico, northern New Mexico region and multiple Pueblos, really beautiful um, traditional New Mexican meals. But um, it opened the door to a new avenue of working with my colleague, Jose Andreas in World Central Kitchen, where I'm on the board there, of pioneering this idea of culinary curriculum. How can we take what has historically been kind of a European fine dining concept that is taught in virtually every culinary school and adding almost a minor in nutritional activism. Uh, And that now is is happening all over America. So what was just kind of a random experiment here in New Mexico is leading to another very cool aspect of my journey. Uh, And I got to share with you, in Orange County, a community college has rolled that into a full sustainability program. So with composting and and the full cycle of, of, uh, of food, uh, but it started with you and it's, it's growing. And, and of course, uh, you know, once the curriculum is established in one location, then all those community colleges can follow suit. And they're the, in my estimation, the most effective uh, repurposing kitchens because you have, you know, it's funny, you may know years ago, I launched a thing called campus kitchens and there were 80 of them. Uh, but I really, to me, it was community colleges. It was yeah. to me, they're the ones yet funders. Let's go back to the kind of the maddening nature of corporate partnerships. And I've had great partners, but historically, and it isn't right, wrong, good or bad, but the model is how can we, the donor, get the most for the least? In other words, I'm gonna give you, you need a hundred, I'll give you 50, but I want you to do it so I look really good. You know, and, and we had, I kept saying, I want campus kitchens to really expand into rural communities. And this idea, if we could work with a land grant, and I don't wanna to get too far down this, but I'm, a, I'm the king of what's already there. I love existing resources. And land-grant universities, state colleges, which are oftentimes where the ag school is, you know, and cooperative extension and all these kind of cool existing ingredients. That idea of if you could 
get a campus kitchen at a big school like UK and Kentucky and Lexington, but then have four or five small community colleges in rural Kentucky working with students. Imagine the network you could create, particularly in a place like Kentucky, where they actually have branded their um, produce, Kentucky Proud. Many states now have a branding thing so that they really emphasize the purchase of their food. So that idea of saying, wow, you've got Kentucky Proud, you've got the Ag School, you've got all these community colleges, you've got a ton of students who really want to do something powerful, not just kind of, you know, feed the poor. Let's shake it up and make, let's make that super broth, you know, we were talking about earlier, but make it more of a, of a social impact broth. You know? Well, I got to tell you, I remember uh, giving a presentation in, in this, for the city of LA and you were in the room and there were a bunch of people from, uh, from the public sector primarily. And when we talked about this network of repurposing kitchens and I, and I was looking at you and I'm like, he's gonna hate me. And I saw you in the back of the room, give me the thumbs up. And to me, Matt, was a, that was one of the best moments. And we followed up afterwards. And that's when I heard about campus kitchens. I'm like, again, that reassurance of knowing this isn't you know, something we're blazing a trail in. You've already done this. This is, this is you were the first guy through. So in our Let's business- talk about that for a second, dude, because you know, um, one of the things I encountered in many of the cities I went to years ago, man, I went to this one city to help a campus kitchen open up. And the head of a local food organization confronted me and literally looked me in the face and said, you're trying to steal our hungry people. And I, I just, I mean, to me, it was like, that's, it, it, it was like literally shocking. Yet that culture exists tragically, tragically amongst our sector. And I wanted to be that overt thumbs up dude, because I don't know how many times I had fellow nonprofit, you know, uh, uh, hunger people work really hard to shut me down because they were threatened. No, he'll take our money. He'll take our food. And it's like, it's not your food. We're stewards. You yes. know, that's our whole concept. You know, we're, it's, it's who's, you know, who's using it the best. I don't care that you're feeding the poor and it's your food. If, if I can feed more people than you, more efficiently than you, you know, again, I, I'm a big believer in meritocracy. But I am a, a, a mad believer in open source and that idea of let it all bloom. Don't try and hold somebody back because it, it, it ruffles your feathers. In fact, frankly, dude, everybody needs their, ruff, their feathers ruffled to keep them honest. You know, so That's I, exactly I love right. competition. Makes me well, smaller. and then trying to get nonprofits is one of our biggest challenges is getting nonprofits to understand that collaborating gets them further. Um, don't look at it as competition. It's competition, as you mentioned, that it pushes us to be better and more effective, but together we actually accomplish our goals. And that brings me to the other question, which was, if we are trying to elevate the bar beyond just how many pounds are distributed or how many pounds are recovered or how many people are we serving to how many people can we improve their lives or their standing or their ability to get out of poverty? If, I mean, that's really what our measure of success should be. I see that we're making some, some headway, but you, since you've been in this for 30 years, what are you seeing? Well, A, you know, there's a, a, a new generation of food makers coming along that are, I think are gloriously rejecting pounds moved as the metric for success. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a hard thing to say out loud, but particularly um, during the past two years in which we've seen so many Americans perish, we haven't really discussed the, the role that chronic diet-related illness plays in, their more, in those comorbidities of diabetes, hypertension, obesity. 
that made people so susceptible to the virus or made the virus so lethal. And I think that that's a hard thing to talk about, but we in the hunger movement should own the fact that we have, in the pursuit of pounds moved, pushed way too much junk food down on poor people. So that idea of a new nutritional standard. And I'll be honest with you, man, if I was a mayor of a town, I'd, I'd be pushing pretty hard to say, hey, man, look, we can't afford a bunch of sick poor people anymore. You know, we're, you know, we're not, I can't tell you how to run your food bank, but I really want to see a nutritional, you know, some kind of bar here and no more of this junk food going out, or I'm going to have to come down a little bit hard because I can't sit by and watch people get sick um, just in the name of, the, of this charitable pursuit. So that's one thing. Yeah. And luckily there's a whole generation of young people coming along. Well, you know, I, I got to tell don't... you, I had, I had an elected official in Mississippi uh, asked us to come out because they liked our model to address food insecurity. They said, if you look at those social determinants of health as a wheel and um, food is a spoke in that wheel, food insecurity. Oh, yeah. So we went out there, we you know, kind of established the program or set it up. And then we get a call back eight months ago saying, food's not a spoke, F food is the hub of the wheel. And in his own articulate way said, you can be uneducated for life. You can be homeless for an extended period of time. You can be unhealthy, but you got to eat. So we should be using food as a way of providing wraparound services. And that's, you mentioned that in your book that I think you wrote in 2004, that there's, there's ability to use food to, to either just feed people or sustain them, but you can also use it as a, as a honeypot, so to speak, to have services that are really going to help them. Oh, you bet, man. That's why, you know, the model has always been the power of food, you know, exploring the power of food, not just, I always say, you know, it's to liberate, not just satiate, you know, and, and that's a big part of what I think is important now. Like, for example, uh, the work I do with World Central Kitchen and Jose Andreas in Disaster Relief, historically, the model was um, the Red Cross, FEMA, other groups would, would bring food in to serve people affected by a hurricane or flood. Our model is like, well, I mean, I get it but that kind of erodes the local economy. And why don't we go in and buy local food and hire local chefs? And that way, not only are we feeding people, but we're rebuilding the economy while we do it. And again, another kind of D for duh thing, but you think, you know, again, uh, you think we were talking about, you know, communism and I mean, it was just, it was so hard and people pushed so firmly back on this very simple evolution. Uh, but again, that goes back, and I tell funders this every day, if anybody asks, if, if an organization can't tell you what they're doing today to decrease demand tomorrow, mm -hmm. walk away. Yep. You know, if, 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 what, if, if that meal going out the door isn't in some way attached to a sense of momentum forward, to helping people out of that, that pit of poverty, you know, or taking a first step forward, if there isn't something... And that's, that's my big motto now. It isn't how many pounds you move. It's how much liberation you squeeze out of every ounce you get. Yep. Yep. So I think you'll find pride in this, but I have to share with you, going back to our roots in Orange County, uh, the county has uh, asked us to implement an emergency meal plan where we are using our food repurposing kitchens to develop meals, individual meals, vacuum sealed, blast frozen, and using another solution which is the solar powered freezers spread out throughout the community where we'll hold these meals. So when the next giant earthquake hits and both food banks are damaged, 
We don't have to wait for FEMA to get in. We have ready to thaw and eat meals out in the community already. So I've been dying to tell you about this because, and I'm sorry, it had to be on a podcast that I shared it with you, but I figured you would take great oh, pride no, in that. Dude. See, you know, I, I just love that, that kind of thinking, you know, it's proactive. You know, again, we go back to probability, you know, there's going to be an earthquake and you can wait till it happens and then race around like a chicken with their head cut off. Or you can say, it's going to happen. Let's plan now. In other words, we can wait for something bad to happen or we can march out to meet the future today. Yeah. And, and, and we have to give credit to the elected officials who identified that because that's rare, quite honestly. Uh, they're typically reactionary. When I first came to LA and opened, I remember I, you know, I, I went down and helped uh, Kitchens for Good open up and down in San Diego. But I remember coming out there and somebody said, Man, why don't you come to Orange County? You know, we, we love entrepreneurs out here in Orange County. And I, I must admit, man, it was tempting because, you know, I grew up out in uh, uh, Anaheim, the tragic kingdom when I was a kid. Um, and, and, you know, part of me was really kind of, part of me really loved the, the symbolism of, of Los Angeles. But there are moments when I wonder uh, how my fortunes would have might changed if I had gone to OC versus down into LA. Well, I'll tell you, we were just, um, you know, there's an old saying that the first one through the door gets their nose bloodied. And that was you. You paved the way for the rest of us and so many more behind you. I cannot thank you enough for your work, for your help, always being there for us. And I got to tell you, anytime I reach out to you, you respond so quickly and that means the world to us. So I want to thank you for your, what you've done, but also for being here with us today. Uh, and you know, hope it wasn't uh, a waste of your time. No, and dude, also, dude, dude. I'm, good. I'm so I'm so honored by your words. And I, I'm again, I'm, I'm elated by your friendship and, and your ongoing interest in hearing uh, thoughts and ideas. And again, so I'm always honored when people reach out, but particularly when they're friends like you, who I know are out there continuing to push hard uh, and to move the needle forward. So rock on my brother. Great. Thank you so much, Robert. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to Plentiful, an Abound Food Care podcast. You can find the Plentiful podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you find your podcasts. Visit our website, www.aboundfoodcare.org, for more information about Abound Food Care and how to donate and support Abound Food Care. Keep up with us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.